Ahoy authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Alyssa Archer. Welcome to episode 56 of the Writership Podcast. I'm Leslie Watts. And I'm Alyssa Archer. Leslie and I are the co-captains of Writership.org, where we create books, programs, and content for writers who want to improve their craft. With this podcast, we want to help you edit your way into a great book. If you'd like to find out more about us and Writership, you can find us on the web at Writership.org. The Writership Podcast is brought to you by the Author Marketing Institute as part of the AMI Podcast Network. You can learn more about how AMI is helping authors by visiting www.authormarketinginstitute.com. If you go there today, you can get their free video course entitled Selling Your First 100 Copies. That's authormarketinginstitute.com. All righty. So today... When this episode goes live, Leslie and I will be at the Smarter Artist Summit put on by uh, Sterling and Stone, the self-publishing podcast guys here in Austin. And um, as we're recording this, we're looking forward to it with such great anticipation and realizing just how much energy that brings to our writing career, how much um, goodness there is in connecting with other writers, authors, editors people who are in your field. Um, And so we wanted to take a moment and encourage you if you are feeling lonely or isolated to reach out to others in your community or find an event like that to participate in because it brings so much richness to your writing life when you connect with people who can geek out with you about the same things. And so, no, I know, Leslie, you probably have a few ideas about how people can do that if they don't have the money to travel to a big conference. Yeah, yeah, it's not always possible. But there's some really great Facebook groups on er, on Facebook um, and other online groups. I know there are meetups. Um, we'll have a Facebook group actually coming soon. That's a little... Uh, a little sneak peek um, <laughs> or a uh, little teaser. A little teaser. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for the word. Yeah. So um, you can find writing partners either with you, you know, in where you live, or um, I have a friend who lives in Virginia and I've written her with her um, for oh gosh, like 12 years now. Um, And we do it over the phone. You can do, like I said, Facebook groups, you can do email groups, there are lots of ways to connect with people. And it's, you know, it's just really important, we have to, you know, ultimately sit down and write by ourselves. But it can feel lonely. And, um, and you can start to believe the voices in your head that tell you that you're not very good or that you should just give up or whatever. And we don't want you to do that. So make sure that you're connecting and keep finding or keep looking until you find the right um, the right people for you to help support you in your writing. Absolutely. I know over the course of my career, I've tried out several groups that just weren't a good fit for me. But when I find the ones that are, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I I have some standing writing dates where I go to a local cafe and meet with fellow authors. And it's so nice to hear them say, 
What are you working on? Oh my gosh, finish that already. It's it's encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, their excitement and enthusiasm is contagious. And I feel the same way about their writing. So I know it's a reciprocal relationship. And I also participate still in a critique group and get feedback on my writing that way. So that's also really helpful in developing my own craft and <clears throat> um, contributing to other authors as well. So yes, if you're feeling lonely, alone, isolated, reach out, reach out. There are so many authors. And yes, we're introverts for the most part, but that doesn't mean that we aren't interested in really deep conversations and and exchanges with fellow writers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Totally agree. Obviously. All right. (laughs) Should we get started? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Today's quote is from Kevin Hearn. I'm diving into revisions with gusto. Quite honestly, I love this part because pretty much everything I do will make the book better. There's a lot of positive energy behind that instead of the flailing doubt that typically affects writers. And some time away from the manuscript provides a certain clarity about what needs to be done. Again, that's Kevin Hearn. Preach it, brother! Yeah, I love this because, you know, so many people are like, oh, editing, you know, and, um, and of course, obviously, I I like editing a little bit. Um, And so I have some enthusiasm, but you know, it's that idea, like, you, you know, you're improving your manuscript, and it does take time. And it's, you know, it's a, it's can be a long haul kind of um, project. But it's um, if you can harness that, you know, that hopefulness that every time you go through it, your manuscript, you're making it a little bit better, a little closer to hitting publish and sharing your stories with the world. And um, so I like that. I like his hopefulness and his positive energy there. Yes. And also this this note right here is one that we talk about quite a bit. Some time away from the manuscript provides a certain clarity about what needs to be done. And we're always talking about let it rest. And mm-hmm. it's true. It's so true. Some time away gives you the clarity about what needs to be done. Yeah. So don't be afraid to put it down for a little while. Just make sure you make a date with yourself to pick it back up. Right. Yes. Good point. All right, shall we get to today's critique session? Yes, let's do. All right, we have a treat for you today. Let's do we? Please go. Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's Leslie's turn to read. We're 55 episodes down, and I've gotten to read every single submission so far, but Leslie's going to take a crack at it today. So, All right. Yeah, yeah, we just kind of, we'll see how it goes. We might go back to Alyssa for next week. We'll see how. (laughs) Okay. So today's submission is from Sarah Lee Etter, and it is called The Mystery at Blackstone's Stables. The genre is historical mystery, and the total word count is about 50,000, and it's not yet published. All right. I'm going to take a sip of water before I dive into this. Okay, now the mystery at Blackstone's Stables. Kensington, 1866. I was being cut dead, snubbed by the one friend I had always counted upon to keep my secrets, 
as long as I came to him bearing gifts. Well, you're quite, you're in quite a mood today, I whispered into the hay-flecked gloom of the box stall. Turn down a nice apple? It's not like you. I folded my arms over the top of the stall gate and stared at Blaze. Calm, solid, trustworthy. What had I done to offend him? The chestnut gelding snorted and shook his mane, but still stayed on the far end of the stall. Don't you like me anymore? I cleared my throat to get rid of the wheedling note that had crept into my voice. He was only a horse, after all. Someone spoke behind me. Miss, you didn't ought to be in here. You know the governor doesn't, don't like it above half. Ned, what's wrong with Blaze? He loves apples. Please, miss, no customers allowed in the stables. Giving in to the stable boy's pleading look, I tucked the apple back into a pocket of my riding habit and walked out into the yard. Silly of me, really, to feel hurt by Blaze's refusal to come to me, to let me pet him and whisper in his ear. I blinked in the bright Friday afternoon sunlight and shaded my eyes with one hand as I looked around for Mama. Just two hours ago, Mama had heard from Mrs. Thomas that Mrs. Cudlip had said her son, the unmarried Reverend Pender Cudlip, would be riding in Hyde Park later today. So Mama immediately hustled me home and bundled us both into riding habits, all the while thanking Providence that our home was so well located. We could hire our mounts from nearby Blackstone Stables and simply ride across Kensington Road to the western entrance to Hyde Park. We could then meet Reverend Cudlip there, purely by accident, and exclaim upon the happy chance that had brought us together. Mama stood in the center of the stable yard, slender and petite and silvery blonde. She was frowning, perhaps because neither of the two people with her was Reverend Pender Cudlip. Oh, there you are, Lucy, Mama tapped her riding crop lightly against the skirts of her neat black riding habit. Did you hear? Blaze and Dancer have been given to other riders. I nodded to Annie Thomas and William Gilbert, happy to see them both. In my opinion, they were better companions than our rector. It's shocking, Annie tossed her head, her bright red-brown curls barely visible through the netting that confined them. Annie is that singular anomaly, a lady novelist, but she's no pale and bookish little creature. Tall, sturdy, and endowed with womanly curves, Annie is the picture of energy and health. Lucy and I always ride Blaze and Dancer. I don't know what they can be thinking. Mr. Gilbert tucked his own riding crop under his arm and smiled down at Annie. They are thinking that they'll bring us other nags to ride. There is something of a Norse god about Mr. Gilbert. He reminds me of Thor, the god of thunder, big and golden-haired and fierce. All that he lacks to complete the effect is a giant hammer. 
Perhaps he carries it with him into the courtroom when he appears in his role as a barrister. We often met Miss Thomas and Mr. Gilbert at Blackstone Stables. Annie and her widowed mother live around the corner from us, and Mr. Gilbert's mother and unmarried sisters live just down the road from our own little villa. Our neighborhood is almost rustic, with the with the stable so close at hand and the market garden a short distance away. One might almost believe Kensington to be a comfortable, respectable little village somewhere in the country, but in fact, London is quite close, and thanks to the recent extension of the Metropolitan Railway just south of our church, getting closer all the time. A huge clatter arose, and all four of us backed out of the way as a smart-looking carriage swirled into the yard, and the driver pulled up the matched greys with a flourish. The carriage disgorged a party of three, a leathery, straight-backed old gentleman, and a young woman in a very fashionable, very daring, military-style riding dress. Behind them, Looking reluctant to leave the carriage, lurked a soft-faced young man in a pair of ill-fitting jodhpurs. The young woman surveyed the stable yard. Looks right enough, I dare say, she pronounced in the distinctive accent of one born in London's East End. The old gentleman nodded, but it'll be a but it'll be a Tilbury for you this time, my dear. I won't have it any other way. So these were the people who had been given our favorite mounts to ride. Old Mr. Blackstone was crusty and cantankerous, but he was unswervingly loyal. It had been he who had taught me how to ride, who had dried my tears and dusted me off and refused to let me abandon my riding lessons after falling off my pony. He knew Annie's and Mr. Gilbert's families as well. He would not have allowed our horses, the ones he himself had chosen for us, to be snatched away for anyone. Mr. Blackstone's son, however... I said, young Mr. Blackstone had a hand in this, I am sure. The younger man was a striving, pushing sort of fellow, and these new customers looked wealthy and important. Old Mr. B wouldn't have given our horses away to strangers. Noble strangers, said Mr. Gilbert. We ordinary mortals cannot hope to measure up to the allure of a duke. Oh, well then, I considered the newcomers with interest. So, the old gentleman was a duke. The newspapers and journals included illustrations of the notables of the day, but I had never before seen a duke in the flesh, as it were. At that moment... Young Mr. Blackstone scurried up to the trio, dry-washing his hands and bowing repeatedly to the duke, the young woman, and the pale young man. Not that the duke noticed his efforts to be helpful. 
The old gentleman's back was ramrod straight, and his full head of white hair shone like silver as he strutted back and forth, issuing orders. His parade ground shout demanded that a horse be harnessed up to a Tilbury for the lady. No, damn your eyes, hadn't he just said she hadn't he just said she would be driving, not riding today? Bring a Tilbury on the double. I'll ride in the Tilbury, suggested the pale young man. A lock of overlong brown hair straggled over his eye as he watched his step, as if reluctant to let his highly polished riding boots touch the dusty stable yard. He nodded to the woman. Wouldn't want to leave you all alone, my dear. Nonsense, barked the old gentleman. You'll ride. Can't have you moping about like those weaklings you waste your time with. Poetry. Pah! Indecent, I call it. Got to get out and take some exercise. Get the blood flowing in your veins. The poet rolled his eyes in dramatic but silent martyrdom. The young lady with the cockney accent shrugged her shoulders and sent him a look of wry sympathy. It was as good as a show. And that is the end of our submission. Lovely. <clears throat> I so enjoyed this. Um, historical mystery is one of my favorite genres. And so I love it when we're thrust so completely into a world like this. And um, Sara Lee does a nice job of really setting a scene. And... Um, I especially love her character descriptions. So I'm going to jump in with that and feel free to jump in whenever, Leslie. But um, she introduces us quite a host of characters here in a short amount of time, and she does it quite deftly. And I think the reason is that these descriptions are, are quick and um, I keep using the word deft. So let me just call a few of them out. Uh, there's something of a Norse god about Mr. Gilbert. He reminds me of Thor, the god of thunder, big and golden-haired and fierce. All that he lacks to completely affect is a giant hammer. So I have a really good sense of Mr. Gilbert right from there. Yeah. And, yeah, um, no, I think she paints a really lovely picture of the of of him there. And um, it's not, uh, you've mentioned before, it's not a um, like a police description. It's more giving us a sense of him and his character. Right. And right before that, we meet Annie, right? Mm -hmm. The singular anomaly, a lady novelist. So there's already this little bit of, what's uh, oh, the word? And this time, so being a lady novelist is a bit uh, risque or daring. And mm -hmm. so she's, she's brave. Um, but she's no pale and bookish little creature. She's tall, sturdy, and endowed with womanly curves and the picture of energy and health. Um, so I, I, again, instantly have a great picture of Annie. And I also have a, a sweet picture of Mama, right? She's a meddler, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> I love a meddling mother. <laughs> and um, she's standing in the center of the stable yard, slender and petite and silvery blonde. There's something delicate about Mama. Mm -hmm. Um. Really, the only character I don't have a real strong sense of is Lucy. Mm -hmm. I um, I struggled 
to find a clue as to how old she really is throughout all of this, right? She's, um, her, her, she's, I'm presuming unmarried or her mother wouldn't feel the need to meddle and intercept an eligible bachelor, I'm assuming. Right. Um, but she's also quite taken with Blaze. You know, we see her in the first scene feeling quite snubbed by her regular, the horse that she regularly lets. And so um, that I felt like maybe I was with an eight to 12 year old girl in the opening. And then when I found out that Mama was arranging this chance encounter, I thought, oh, maybe she's considerably older than I thought. <clears throat> and I really don't have any clue about how old Lucy is um, throughout all of this. And tell me if you read that differently, Leslie. But I mean, I'm not really clear um, uh, precisely, like, is she... Um is she 18ish is she a spinster i don't i don't know i i agree that um i think her observations um and uh and the way she yeah, i think with her observations i know i don't think that she's a small girl um or you know 8 to 12 um but you could get that impression from the very first um her interaction with blaze um, it's possible. Um, so I would, yeah, I would, I like that we get a really clear picture of her mind and her spirit um, from being uh, so firmly in her point of view. Um, but yeah, I would like a little more, uh, I would like to know um, what she looks like just so I could um, begin to form a picture in my mind. Yeah, even some kind of reaction to Mama's meddling could give us a clue right. about where she's at with that. Oh, here, here we go with this again. Yeah, oh, you know? <laughs> Mama, I'm not, I'm not quite a spinster yet, or something like. That. Right. I don't she know. She does. She, I agree. She's, she's very observant, um, and she has a really some lovely poetic observations about this party like the the carriage disgorged a party of three i mm-hmm. thought was really lovely and made and um made me wonder if lucy is reading uh, some of annie's novels <laughs> yes <laughs> but beyond that i wanted a little bit more emotional reaction from lucy she's very observant to the point that we don't see how she feels about this party that's come to supersede their uh, their mounts yeah daily ride and or the power often it is um i i'm wanting just a little more tension in this so it's a mystery right and don't yet have a dead body but with a mystery we typically end up with a dead body somewhere pretty quickly Um, so what we need in the meantime is that bridging conflict or the bridging tension and there's enough groundwork here to have that bridging tension but it's not quite in the manuscript yet yeah yeah so i yes i see what you're saying that it would be you know because we've got the elements she could be really upset about that and it could be the thing like she could be um kind of indignant or like why should this be but she's kind of um She's not, re- yeah, we're not seeing an emotional reaction. And at first I thought, well, maybe that's the kind of girl she is. You know, she's just not, um, she doesn't get um, phased by things like, you know, things like this that happen. Um, but then I, then I thought, well, she's so, she really, um, 
she she's a little upset that Blaze is not paying attention to her um, at the beginning, you know, and um, and so I'm kind of so I'm wondering then is that an accurate picture of her that she wouldn't be upset that she doesn't get to even ride him. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I think that's a valid point that it, it would be, and it would kind of give us a little, as you say, a little conflict, a little tension. There's something she wants and she's not getting it. And it's more than just the attentions of the horse. Right. Right. And on that note, there is this really nice, like this, um, in the opening when she says to blaze, don't you like me anymore? Mm. I cleared my throat to get rid of the wheedling note that had crept into my voice. Like that's this lovely unconscious representation of how hurt she is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then her putting it down. He was after he was only a horse after all. Right. You know, this self-talk that says, okay, don't be silly. Right. She needs to (laughs) herself. Yeah. Proper. Be, be British. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So speaking of being British, we wanted to talk about setting with this one. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think that um, the, the author has pulled in a lot of different elements to make, to really make the setting lovely. We have, you know, we have um, some, we have the clothing, right? Um, and we have the riding mm-hmm. habits and we have... Um, the ill-fitting and we have um what else do we have we have oh the expression damn your eyes which to me cannot be said often enough I just love that (laughs) expression so much so that was like that I mean there's so much working here but when I read that I was like oh yeah um so it's uh we have really lovely elements um, going back to Annie and this, you know, Annie is that singular anomaly, a lady novelist that firmly places me in a very particular place in time. Like I know, mm-hmm. I know where we're at with that. Right, right. And we have the, um, and, and Kensington could practically be in the country. Um, so that's a, right, that's a different time, obviously, than we're living in right now. And um, what else was it? There's the... Um, the word choices, I think, in a lot of places were um, were just, yeah, there's, there's so many subtle elements, I think, to this piece that help us um, settle into that, that setting. Um, right. So we're talking word choices. So we're talking diction, which includes dialogue. And the dialogue is really well done here. Mm-hmm. Nonsense, barked the old gentleman. You'll ride. Can't have you moping about like those weaklings you waste your time with. Poetry. Pah. Indecent, I call it. Got to get out and take some exercise. Get the blood flowing in your veins. Like, (laughs) it's just like, I see these people. It's really well done. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I like that. Um, What else? I wanted to mention... Okay, it'll come to me. There, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one word choice that I, I wanted to mention um, beyond that. That um, and that's just just something to consider that this author might want to um, say might call the stable um, black stone stable and not make it 
uh, staples and not make it possessive. Just because as I was reading it, I noticed that it was, I, I tripped over the black stones stables. Um, and so um, that's just something to consider. It's, it's kind of minor, um, but uh, if you're considering audio at all for, um, for this story, then you might consider that because um, the place pops up. Um, just in this, uh, in this submission, uh, a couple times. Um, and yes. Yeah. So this is really just a lovely opening. I think a little bit more tension would, um, bring quite a bit to it. Um, your historical readers are going to be fine with a small, a slower pace and really going to, they're going to enjoy being sunk deeply into this world as we are. Mm-hmm. Your mystery, the, the, the people that are reading this for whom mystery appeals the most are going to need a little bit more tension and conflict to pull them to that inciting incident where we find mm-hmm. what I'm assuming that we'll find the body. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remembered what, um, the other thing I wanted to mention that um, I appreciated that the um, the young woman who came in the carriage with the Duke and the, the young man that um, she was uh, that she pronounced her you know her that her words were pronounced in the distinctive accent of one born in London's East End and that um, the the text wasn't, or well, her speech wasn't, didn't, they didn't do the, she didn't do the dialect um, in, in spelling and, and that, and that can be done well. Um, but I appreciated it. Um, it's, it's an easier read if, and um, if we just get the hint of that. So, so um, we, you know, we know London's East End, she, you know, and then there's a reference later to her Cockney accent. Um, and it doesn't need to be um, heavy handed um, that it, you can just make a reference like that. And that is sufficient. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I, I agree with us. There are times where you're tempted to really put a lot of the dialect into the dialogue itself. And it slows the reader down dramatically. So just just a hint. Yeah. I mean, I think there are people who do it well, um, but I th- it's one of the, those things that I think is hard to do well and that can be overdone pretty easily. So, um, so I like the, I like this author's approach to revealing that. Oh, and since there, since that was mentioned, I wanted to know a little bit, um, what the young man's voice might sound like. Um, so I wanted just a little hint, but, um, there but uh but that's just that was a minor point yeah we have a few other minor points that we've included in the inline write-up but i don't know that it's necessary to talk about them on the podcast it's more more specific and less um less illuminating for the broader audience yeah yeah so you can check out the individual things or the the more picky things in the show notes um and but overall really well done um very clean prose and um, great for this genre, I think. Yes. Yes. Excellent. So today's editorial mission. Yeah. What do you have for us? <laughs> it's about setting. Okay. So I'm personally, I, I love setting. I typically enter a story through setting um, and it's 
you know, I consider it a third of the Holy Trinity of plot, carrot, and character, right? Mm-hmm. So they've got plot, character, and setting. But many writers spend far more effort developing plot and character than they do setting. And so today, I want you to choose a scene in your manuscript and really consider how you've included or given hints about place and time. Take a look at your diction and see if there's uh, diction that can be even stronger or more indicative of your setting. Um, and take a look at your props. And mm-hmm. so here, I mean, in this piece, we have the writing crop and the jodhpurs and the tilbury. And uh, I mean, the stables itself. And just in your story, look for ways to ground your reader more deeply in the setting and you might be surprised at how much that examination and minor changes can really add to your story and bring it to full life. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a lot of subtle ways to do that. It's really good to explore it. All right. Well, thank you for that, Alyssa. You're welcome. As we wrap things up, we would love for you to remember that the Writership Podcast is brought to you by the good folks at the Author Marketing Institute, which you can find at www.authormarketinginstitute.com. Don't forget to stop by today for access to their video course, Selling Your First 100 Copies. And as a reminder, we'd love for you to pick up a copy of Writership Anchor 2, Draft Time. This is the second book in our flagship series, and it is a 90-day companion to your first draft writing. It's every day, comes with inspiration, information, and exercises to help you finish your first draft. It's available now in ebook form for $2.99 on Amazon.com. So please go ahead and pick up your copy today before the price goes up. All right, that's everything. And we shall see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Writership Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing the show with your author friends and communities. And right after you do that, make sure to contact the hosts, Leslie and Alyssa, to help you find the treasure in your manuscript head on over to writership.org forward slash podcast to submit your pages.